You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. male and female. In the image of God, he created us. Ah. Give 10% of your produce from the fields. Greed is idolatry. The love of money is the root of all... No. Ah, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute me. No. Now I can see some of you with wide eyes wondering where this is going. A little scandalized, possibly offended. (laughs) Which is more offensive? That I tore some pages out of a book or that we actually do that with our lives? We're in a series called Christian Atheism and it's a little salty from time to time. And what we're doing is we're reading through one of the sermons of Jesus in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really intense and definitely worth listening to. And in it, Jesus will tell us the difference between, say, following him and talking about following him. And he'll help us with sentences like the one we're going to talk about today. I believe in God, but I make my own rules. I believe in God, but I make my own rules, a particular kind of Christian atheism. Would you turn with me in a Bible to Matthew chapter 5? We'll be in Matthew 5, 7 today. And for the record, you, or 17, 5, 17, you might want to leave a bookmark in this because we're going to come back to the Sermon on the Mount next week. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Obey. Have you seen this? It's everywhere. It's on t-shirts. It's in alleys. It's being putting it on their own billboards, their own restaurants. It's amazing, really. And you've probably seen this, and maybe you haven't, but it all comes uh, from this image by a street artist named Stephen Ferry, who I think is a genius, a genius, when it comes to work some types of art. And here's what I mean by that. At times in the zeitgeist, the spirit of a time, there's this kind of idea that the culture has but can't really, can't really figure out how to like, express it in the right way. And then an artist will figure out how to say it. And then we'll make an image or a song or any number of other things and give it back to the culture, which goes, yes, exactly. That's what we were looking to do, which I think explains the popularity of this image. 
but also the reason I'm confident you know what it means. So I'm curious, how many of you really think that he wants you to obey? How many of you think he doesn't want you to obey? He doesn't want you to obey. Excellent. Now, some of you have not before and don't really have a sense of like context or what it means. You never looked it up on the internet, and yet you're really confident that that's not what he wants you to do, even though that's what he tells you to do. How do we know this isn't to be taken at face value? How do we know this is sarcasm? How do we know that this is reverse psychology? We know because that's already what we wanted to know. That's what we wanted it to say. He figured out how to say what we already wanted to say. And so for us, this conjures up the image of like something we've never seen before, a totalitarian regime. Some kind of these come and they, they capture you and they take you away. For all the rhetoric in our time, there's nothing like that in our country, in our culture, and in our time. In other places, that's definitely true. And yet people are putting this up everywhere as if there was a resistance army that needed to fight against something because deep down we all really like the idea of fighting against authority structures in our lives. That's a fascinating thing. We look at this image and it makes us go, yeah, I really should question the authorities around me. I should think about all of the people who might or control over me right now. And I should resist. Now, here's where the gospel gets countercultural. Jesus will tell us to obey. And we don't want to. We don't want to obey, and we don't even know what he's telling us to do yet. We're just against the idea of obedience. Now, that's a particularly weird thing in our time, in our country, and in our culture, but it is everywhere. Left, right, young, old, race, gender, class, creed, amount of money, doesn't matter. For the last years we've been hearing time and time again, resist. Resist the Trump administration. Resist nationalism. Resist racism. Resist Russia. Resist Facebook. Resist. And now we hear very much the same thing. Resist the election results. Resist the Biden administration. Resist communism. Resist. We are ready to fight against anyone that we have not especially chosen to be in charge of us. One of the reasons we hate the idea of masks is not logic, it's not science, it's not process, it's just I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like people telling me what to do. And that's true, we just don't like people telling us what to do. And here comes Jesus saying, don't be confused. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have come to fulfill I am telling you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of the letter is getting ripped out of this book. This book is the Word of God. This book tells you how to live. If you want to follow Jesus, this is your book, because this is Jesus' book. Here's the thing. We don't live in a democracy if we're Christians. We don't. We live in a monarchy. We don't have a president. He's not running for re-election. We have a king. We have a Lord. It's not vote for me. It's bow down. Yeah, Woo! Yeah. I want to preach all of a sudden. I don't know what just happened. <laughs> bow down. Submit. Obey. I'm uncomfortable saying that. Because I know you listening will begin to think he means listen to him. He's trying to tell us what to... Like that, 
that just there's something about that Stephen Fairy image that really does it for us. We go, yeah, I should fight something, but I don't know what it is. But if anyone stands up, it'll be them. Whoever has anything to say in my life, it'll be them. I am ready. I am ready. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. You read this book from beginning to end, he will poke you. He will say things like, you're going to turn your swords and your guns into plowshares and pruning hooks. Mm. He's going to say things like, God cares about your sex life. He has strong opinions. Mm. He's going to say things like, God cares very deeply about every human life. They're all precious to him. Unborn, criminal, mentally handicapped, elderly, enfeebled, doesn't matter. Every single person, especially the people you don't particularly care for, those lives are precious to the Lord God. Ha! This book! This book doesn't really work with political things that we would like to choose for ourselves. And it turns out that what Jesus is talking about is that you and I are being invited into something called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which is the place where God is in charge and you are not. The place where God is in charge and I am not. Ah! I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know if I really want to be a part of that. I don't know if I really want to obey. And so Jesus comes at us and points out that we may have a problem with him simply because he is going to command us as Lord. And that's a lot of what the Sermon on the Mount is going to get into. What exactly Jesus is asking us to do. How exactly Jesus relates to this thing called the Old Testament. Now Christians like to call it the Old Testament uh, because that makes it sound old and we don't have to listen to it as much. That sounds nice. And it's a little dull for some, for some of us, or just long lists of rules or names that are hard to pronounce. And so we don't really like to get into it. And then we imagine, because it's old, we don't have to listen to it. And here's the thing. Jesus would call that the Bible. That's Jesus' Bible. Hands down. He's going from it all the time. His favorite book of the Bible? Deuteronomy, in case you wonder. Most of the quotes come from Deuteronomy. Paul, in the New Testament, when he's constantly talking about why Jesus matters, what it is about Jesus that matters, he says he's the new Abraham. He's the better Moses. He is the new and improved Adam. And the list goes on and on and on. You will not understand Jesus without the Old Testament. And Jesus does not understand himself without the Old Testament. There's a couple of stuff that we don't like to read. That stuff that has things in it that we're not quite sure what to do or we're not quite sure what we like. And the truth is, most of us, even people who say, I really believe in the Bible, what they mean is, I believe in the parts of the Bible that I want to listen to. And I'm not going to read the rest of it. I like the Gospels. I like Paul on salvation. I don't like all that stuff about immigrants and justice. Hmm. I like the stuff about the immigrants and the justice. Hmm. But I don't really like the like hell stuff. Hell that, really. And we don't really like the parts of the Bible that we don't really like. We don't want to read those parts of the Bible. Here's the deal. As Christians, you can dislike parts of the Bible. You can be confused by parts of the Bible. But if you don't want to believe in the other parts that you don't like, you don't really have a Bible. In fact, you don't really have a new Lord. If you have parts of the Bible, and only specific parts that you'll listen to and the rest of it you get rid of, what you have as a God is you. You who get to pick your scriptures that tell you what you already like to hear. This is a really convicting thing that I once came across when a professor pointed out that I only read certain parts of the Bible that I like the best, and I sort of leave the rest of it behind. It's not that I just, it's sort of, a, well, it's a practical Christian atheism. I wouldn't say I don't believe in God, I just... I pick the parts of the Bible I like. I pick my own rules. Jesus is talking to people who actually have no problem with the Old Testament, which I think is really interesting. And these are people listening to Jesus. You and I, we hear things like, you know, the law and the gospel, they're kind of opposed to each other. We get uncomfortable with the idea of like the God of grace and the God of the Old 
Testament, but the, the people that Jesus is talking to are very confident that the God of the Old Testament is a God of grace. Absolutely. And Jesus, who's doing the talking, is the God of the Old Testament in the flesh, which is one of the reasons you can't understand without the Old Testament. He really wants you to understand that's who he is. And so as he talks to them, one of the things he's saying is, you might, listening to me or watching me, begin to believe that I don't really value this book. Which is a It's as though if you watch Jesus, he will be so confident in his interpretation, so radical in his reinterpretation, that you may genuinely think he doesn't like it. When in fact, what he's doing is helping you understand it in a way it's never been understood before. In the way it was always to be understood. There's a New Testament commentator named Dale Bruner. And uh, in his commentary, he talks about this, about uh, how Jesus' life cannot adequately be described as an unbooked life. Jesus was a Jew. And Jews are first and foremost people of the book. In our time, book learning is frequently looked on, down, frequently looked down on by Christians. Jews have never been misled from respect for books. So while the Goyim go running off into the real world in frantic projects, the Jews burrow more deeply into books and change the world. To be anti-book is, of course, to be anti-intellectual. But in light of Jesus' first command here, to be anti-book is to be anti-Christian, too. One purpose of this first command is to marry us to a book. This is our book. This is our book because that's our Lord. And if he's not your Lord, it's not your book, and you can walk away, and that's easy. But for those of us who found something in Jesus, we suddenly realize we have to deal with this. And we have to deal with this in light of Jesus. And the cool thing about Jesus is he helps us to understand it. In fact, Jesus, when he walks on the scene, has this radical kind of authority. He says things like, don't think I have come. I have not come, but I have come. Right? That's the first verse there. That's a weird verb to choose. He doesn't say, I'm a rabbi who teaches this way. He doesn't say, oh, this is the kind of thing that I like to say. He says, I have come, as if from another planet, as if from another reality, as if he's not like everyone else here. He'll start sentences with, amen, I say to you, which in verse 18 in the translation I read is, a very truly, I tell you. You might have things like that. So when you and I end prayers with, amen, Jesus begins sentences with, amen, with a strange, radical kind of authority, because our prayers end where God's action begins, and Jesus' sentence begins where God's action begins. So when Jesus starts talking about the Bible, when Jesus starts talking about these words, it's pretty clear the deeper we go into the Sermon on the Mount, he is both going to give us the Old Testament and then radically reinterpret it for us in ways that will be, well, amazing and difficult to understand, to the point that, honestly, there will be moments when you will read parts of the Bible and you go, what do I do with this as a Christian? Like, how do I, I want to obey God, but this is confusing or strange or so countercultural to me, so challenging to me, I don't want to listen to things like this. And we're going to have the same experience that people had in Europe. If you were a Visigoth in Europe, and you hear, don't murder somebody, you go, oh man, that's how I get honor in my culture. That's, that's just not how it works. If you are living in a Muslim part of the world right now, you will love some of the words in the Old Testament, but you'll be really convicted, really uncomfortable by the way we're told to treat women, by the way we're told to treat people we disagree with, because that's just not how it works in my part of the world. And you and I, we live in a part of the world that is absolutely fine with grace and love, but very uncomfortable with the idea of anyone telling anyone what to do, anyone telling anyone that there is a truth out there that you have to bend your life to. 
I want to bend truth to me. That's how truth works in our culture. But Jesus is this person who, when you follow him, he can change the way the Bible works for you. And that's one of the reasons we show up to church, to listen to the Bible. Sometimes to show up in small groups and have people kind of speak into our lives and say, I don't get this, I don't understand this, I don't really like this. And they can help us to get into it. And they can help us to say, actually, I really don't like it either, but I'm confident we need to find a way through this. And I keep coming back to this because it's weird and mysterious and strange. There's a TV show I like uh, called Prison Break. It's pretty much over now. Prison Break. Yeah, okay. So Prison Break. Prison Break was a TV show that is at least still around enough that one person out It's <laughs> which is great. And so you can go watch it if you want. Uh, for some reason, they ended the show um, not after the prison break. There were several more seasons after they broke. So it was very strange. So that was part of the problem. Uh, the, the basics of prison break, uh, if you can get it at least the first season, it goes like this. There is a guy who has been sent to prison who has the death penalty kind of hovering over his life. And his brother works at the architectural firm that designed the prison. Now, the architects in the room go, yeah. Now, Designed the prison, and he, so he goes and he studies all the drawings in the prison. And then he learns them so well that he plans to break into the prison, and he has the drawings tattooed on his body all over the place. And he has other tattoos on there, so it doesn't just look like he's got architectural drawings on them. But he sort of becomes the architectural drawing, and then he breaks into the prison so that he can get his brother out, and anyone else who wants to follow him. And there are plenty of people who look at him like he's crazy. He's in prison with them. What, what makes him think that he has any kind of plan or any kind of way out? But there are some people who genuinely believe that he has the truth, who genuinely believe that he has the map, that he is the map. And so they don't just look at his body, they follow him. Because he has become the map. And he can lead you to believe that there are certain parts of the prison that look like roads to life that are actually dead ends. And there are certain parts of these drawings that look like dead ends but are actually roads to life. This is exactly how Jesus operates when it comes to the law in the New Testament. Exactly. There are certain things, like Leviticus, where we go, I don't really get how this works anymore. And Jesus says, it looked like the road to life, but this is how it works. I have become all the sacrifices. Oh, so we still can't understand Jesus without Leviticus. It's just we radically re-understand who Jesus is. Now, there are certain parts of the Old Testament, like honor your father and mother, that Jesus doesn't sort of do away with. He dramatically changes so that it becomes in a way more difficult, more radical, more, well, not just the kind of rule that you would follow, but a way of living your life. You begin to embody the words of Jesus, the same way Jesus embodies the words of the Old Testament. We begin to follow him and translate this book with our lives. That's sort of the way it starts to work. And he'll spend a lot of time on this in the Sermon on the Mount, so we'll talk a little bit more about what it means to have a righteousness that's better or greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the scribes and the Pharisees really like the rules of the Old Testament, and there's some people who really like the rules of the Bible, because they're good at keeping them. One of the reasons they're good at keeping them is they believe that this is a great way to get control over God. Hmm. That if I can just check all these boxes, if I can become righteous, I can decide who's not righteous. I can decide who's in and who's out. And Jesus will tell you, that's not how we decide who's in and who's out. That's not how that works at all. And what you're really trying to do is control God in a different way than other people are trying to do. Some folks are saying, I don't need you and I don't need your authority. And some folks walk in and say, I want you and I want your authority because it gives me power over others. That's not how it works. We obey. That's the path to life. Obedience to Jesus. This radical re-understanding of the way that the gospel works. And for some of us, the idea of obedience almost comes along with, okay, so like, there's a lot of stuff that I have to do now. 
But that's not really how the people in the Old Testament understood their God. I know sometimes when we talk about the Old Testament, we think about the idea of like, well, the Old Testament God was retributive, he was mean, he was vengeful, he was all about sacrifice, he was all about rules, he was all about authority, and the God of the New Testament is just full of grace and love and kindness and mercy. The truth is the God of the New Testament is actually pretty fiery at times. And the God of the Old Testament is amazingly gracious because they're the same God. The same God. The God we've met in Jesus is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. And one of the amazing things, uh, there's a guy named uh, Alex Meyer, who's a, an Old Testament scholar, and he always invites you to this idea of, like, imagine if you could go back and talk to the Israelites right after Moses sets them free from Egypt. And you walk up to one of them and go, what's your testimony? They say, well, yes, we, well, we were slaves. We were trapped in a power that was just beyond. We were stuck in misery and darkness and death, and there was no way out, and God sent a child to deliver us. And the child came with the very words of God, and he told us where to go, and he told us to shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And then he led us out into a brand new world, a brand new way of life. We have this promised land. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. And we know that God is with us. We know that we have the blood of his covenants. We know that we have his words. We know that we have a mediator who stands between us and the presence of God. And we know that he is going to get us where he is taking us, an eternal home. Now that is our story. Those people are plagiarizing our story. <laughs> and it's possible that the New Testament writers really understood their story in light of the Old Testament story. But what they also would have said was, man, you guys don't even get it. You don't know how good the blood of the Lamb is. You don't really understand the nature of the covenant. You don't know the depth and height and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I are like people who know the end of the story. We live on the other side of the cross. And so when we see the Old Testament, when we see the New Testament, we don't see it as a variety of rules that have to be obeyed so God will love us. We understand exactly what people in many different times have understood, that God loves us. And so we respond to God's love by living differently. We respond to God's love by obeying. And one of the ways that we get to really experience the love of God is by trusting that he knows the way to live. Trusting that he wrote the manual on how a human being, how a human society, how a faith works. And so little by little we follow Jesus. And little by little we learn what it looks like to have a righteousness that's better than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about how that works. But look at verse 20 in your Bibles, if you got one. And so he'll say, right, you need a righteousness that's better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now go back to Matthew 5, 6, which we did not read. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. righteousness. Those who really want righteousness. Why? Because they will be filled. Exactly the way that Jesus is filling and fulfilling the law. He fills and fulfills us. He embodies this story and then comes into our lives to help us embody this story. And those who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness, recognize their need and their lack of righteousness, find that when they turn to Jesus, he fills them. This is the incredible good news that we believe in, that it's not because you're so righteous, it's because Jesus is so righteous. That's why we follow him. That's why we obey him. There's a Christian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who died a long time ago. He wrote a book about this called The Cost of Discipleship. He says the gospel isn't really opposed to the law. Grace isn't opposed to law. At least not in the way people sometimes say that. Grace, or the gospel really, 
is opposed to a cheap kind of grace. A cheap kind of grace that expresses itself in rule keeping to control God, or a cheap kind of grace that says, I don't really have to obey God, I can do whatever I want. And instead he says, costly grace is the gospel because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Hmm. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, says Jesus. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we hear that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. And we know that to cling to those promises, we know that to walk into the reign of God, we know that we live in a monarchy, we know that in order to really call Jesus king, we have to obey. This is the good news. That we have a Savior we can follow who will lead us deeper and deeper into God's love. So, the antidote to this particular kind of Christian atheism, I believe in God, and He makes the rules. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus.